0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Travel Texas, which recently partnered with Outside to send Olivia Christine to Dallas on a wellness getaway. So when Outside told me that I was invited to take a surprise trip to Dallas, I was so excited. A wellness getaway is basically the process of finding your perfect balance between energizing activity and meaningful rest. Maybe that's going for a walk. Maybe that's going for a a hike, a run, maybe that's a luxurious hotel that you just completely self pamper and go to a spa. With easy access to trails, good food, and great weather, Dallas is a perfect place for people with an active lifestyle. But it's also a place where you can slow down and feel your best. So if you wanna get active, if you wanna get outdoors, while pairing that with good food good scenery that's the way to do it visit traveltexas.com get your own to get the trip to texas that really matters yours
1: from outside magazine this is the outside podcast In mountain ranges in many parts of the United States, winter has gotten off to a strong start, and skiers are loving it.
2: Today, several Tahoe ski resorts announced plans to move up their season openers. We are
1: just about an hour and a half away from the start of the Colorado ski season. For outdoor athletes here, big snowstorms and cold temperatures mean fun. Powder days at resorts, adventures in the backcountry, sledding with the kids. But the arrival of winter in other places can mean something very different. For the people of Ukraine, freezing temperatures present a serious threat as the country defends itself from Russian forces. In early November, the New York Times reported that Ukraine was planning for the possibility of a complete blackout in the capital of Kiev due to major damage to the electricity grid. Government workers have been setting up some 1,000 heating shelters that could double as bunkers. Fighting a military conflict in the coldest, darkest time of the year requires both extraordinary resilience and a unique skill set. Today, we have a story from our archives about a time when another country had to defend itself from the invading Soviet Union in what's known as the Winter War.
2: Enemy is behind us. It's following our trucks. Uh,
1: that country was Finland, which shares an 833-mile border with Russia. Today, its soldiers are some of the most advanced winter warfare specialists anywhere. They're called the Jaeger Brigade, and you're listening to them train soldiers from all over the world in winter combat.
2: Sign, sign ambush, for example.
1: Peter Frick Wright and Robbie Carver produced this piece for us back in early 2018, when the Finns were feeling nervous about Russia's intentions. Given what's happened since, the story is more prescient than ever. Here's Peter.
0: Last winter, writer David Woolman went to train with the Jaegers. My name is David Woolman. I'm a writer and journalist based in Portland, Oregon. He wanted to know what skills it took to survive in cold-weather combat. And more importantly, what use are those skills today, when wars are more about intercontinental ballistic missiles and drone strikes than outflanking an opposing force? So outside Flume to Helsinki in the dead of winter, And then David drove 300 miles north to a small military base in Lapland, 62 miles north of the Arctic Circle. He was there for a week, training with Special Forces soldiers who had come to learn the same really cool, but possibly outdated, skills.
2: So they let me tag along with them. So I dropped my gear in this bunkhouse thing and just fell into line as best I could. And all this crazy stuff happened. Okay.
0: Each um, day started at 5.30 in the morning, about five hours maybe, before maybe the sun came really up at 10 a.m. And then it went down again at 2.30 after, in the afternoon. So all through the day, sure. and so often I in the see, dark, I I they practiced drilling so. ice cores and evaluating the snowpack, and all the little things that go beyond just winter travel into winter combat.
2: You know, how not to get snow in the sight of a weapon or in the barrel. Or, there lots of little tiny things. Like, you never blow it. You wouldn't blow... <laughs> the snow out of the site because actually the moisture from your breath will cause new problems so they have all these little tiny things then we did the stuff with booby traps they they were very careful to tell me to put my camera and notebook away for that and we don't want to talk about any of that and then they were later in the program after I had left unfortunately to go interview some military people in Helsinki they slaughtered two reindeer in the field and ate them so I was sort of bummed to miss that Oh, we also did a ton of fire making. I mean, fire making in the snow and like cold, wet knees and just like shaking hands, so hungry. like there was one time where we had to make had to make a fire, put it out, make a fire, put it out. I mean, that was exhausting. And even for some of the pros, it was kind of tiring. and that was um, it was validating when some of the uh special forces guys were like, "You know, we just carry a lighter." <laughs> probably the most brutal test however was skiing straight into a
0: hole in a frozen lake wearing all of their gear it was the kind of cold water that can cause heart attacks and all their warm dry clothes would be in there with them
2: you know I was apprehensive about it but one thing that was helpful was being able to watch a few people do it before me including like some of these super big burly never smiling no comment to the journalist guy finish troops get in that cold water and just act like the biggest babies i'd ever seen
0: in a lot of ways being a soldier is about reacting well and performing under stress and the cold is just another form of stress but it's cold a lot of places and most of those places have a military and yet we go to finland to learn how to be better soldiers in the cold because the Finns have more riding on these skills than almost anywhere else For them, it's not just a drill. Finland shares an 830-mile border with Russia. And after Russia's invasion of Crimea and Ukraine, and the fact that Russian submarines have been caught trolling Finnish waters, and Russian jets repeatedly enter Finnish airspace, the idea of defending that border looks less hypothetical all the time.
2: As a writer, you don't want to play into this world of um, creating an escalation that isn't there. Right? There isn't a sign that Putin is going to go after Finland tomorrow. But if you work for the Ministry of Defense in Finland, or really if you're just Finnish, period, you kind of have this worry about Russia anyway. It's, it's in your DNA. Uh, because over the centuries, people loosely described as Finnish have gone to war with people loosely described as Russian, like dozens of times. That was a story I wanted to learn more about, you know, especially the, the Winter War of 1939-1940. It, it really defines who these people are.
0: In the winter of 1939, it was starting to become clear that Russia and Germany were going to go to war. And so Stalin and Hitler were sort of editing the map of Europe to their strategic advantage. And for his part, Stalin was worried that if Hitler successfully invaded Finland, the Nazi army would have access to both the Baltic Sea and
2: Leningrad
0: the Russian army stronghold.
2: And so Stalin's idea was that he could create more of a buffer zone. He didn't want the Germans to just waltz through Finland and get really close to it's
0: preemptively invading Finland preemptively, so that Germany can't do it later. Yeah.
2: Like let's let's um, let's add some cushion. And the presumption was walking into Finland was super easy. And as we can discuss, he couldn't have been more wrong. So First, tell me your name, and where where are we sitting
3: in, okay. the, in the world? We we are here in Finland, in the east part of Finland, Suomussalmi, um, about two kilometers away from Russia now.
0: This is Helena Seppanen. She's the owner of a guest house that David stayed in while he was visiting towns along the border with Russia, before joining the Jaeger Brigade. He was the only guest, and over dinner, the family started telling him this incredible Paul Revere-style story about their mother who saw the Russian army coming and hauling her children behind her in a sled, she ran ahead of the army, giving local soldiers the chance to hold them off.
2: Tell me about her escape.
3: Okay, um, Lempy, my, mother-in-law, uh, my husband's mother.
2: And so this is late November, 1939. It's actually early morning, although it's so dark all the time in the winter there. It all blends together, but it's very early hours. And the men at that time were in the forest, like doing forestry work and this woman with her young children was just starting like the day and food preparation.
3: She was going to make some porridge for them, but she didn't have any flour. So uh, at the, she went out, and at the same time, they had a dog inside. It sneaked off outside, and then she started to park.
2: So as the story went, to get a better view of what the dog was upset about, she climbed a couple of rungs of the ladder leaning against their home.
3: And she saw so
2: many black people are coming from the forest. And she could see this long line of Soviet soldiers, like their silhouettes.
3: She saw that, how they were already coming. So it was only about 200 meters away, the soldiers coming. So she only had one minute to time to go.
2: And she skied, I can't remember the exact distance now. About
3: 17 kilometers. In total. Yeah, in total. She was thinking that she had to get the word to the soldiers and Russians are here.
2: Her route led her past a bunch of neighboring farms. So I think there was even like a... In the family lore, anyway, there's a count of how many people she warned to, like, get out of the way. And it was more than 100.
3: Uh, 133 people. Because of her? Uh, yeah, because of her.
2: The Finnish soldiers that were there, Evidence I think they were hunkered down at a, at a school in preparation for That's
3: this potential invasion. Uh, they were only about 40, 50 men here against these 10,000 men. Um, but they could hold them for a few days.
2: So it was, you know, incredibly m- moving... Um, to sit and listen to this family talk about what what the woman had done. And at the same time, after spending a couple of weeks in Finland, it, it almost felt like everyone had amazing stories like this. You know, maybe not quite that kind of drama, or maybe not quite like a Paul Revere in miniature thing, but um, this sense that uh, that history it was just a couple days ago is really pervasive.
0: The invasion lasted 105 days. And there's a reason it stands as a cornerstone of modern Finnish identity. Because the Soviets had it handed to them. After his stay at the inn, David traveled to the site of one of the pivotal battles, where reenactors were commemorating the fighting.
2: We are standing, standing right now, a few hundred meters from Marate Road, where passed away about 17,000 Russians and. Uh, About 800 Finnish soldiers.
0: This is Sami Piljahama from the Rata Museum. And he told David that the Red Army was the largest military force the world had ever seen. Finland, on the other hand, was mostly farmers. No one expected them to fend off Stalin's army.
2: But the Finns had a couple of things going for them. For an attacking enemy, Finland is an absolute nightmare. The rolling terrain, the temperatures, the monotony of the pine forests. If you're an attacking force, in this case the Soviets, like with this heavy equipment that's mostly restricted to the few roads cutting from the Soviet Union into Finland, then you're sort of a sitting duck for anybody who is um, stealthy and mobile. Little groups of people on skis. Finnish soldiers, they were everywhere. And <laughs> Stalin was said that this is against uh, every rule. They should to be in one place. Everybody hunts. Everybody is good with a gun. And so a, a lot of the Finnish fighting force, they were sort of snipers by instinct. But their paramount advantage, certainly, during the war, was that they were able to uh, weaponize winter. We'll be right back.
0: During the battle, temperatures were as low as negative 40, and the Russian soldiers were woefully unprepared. Most of them didn't know how to ski or properly camp in the snow. The Finnish soldiers, meanwhile, were like ghosts disappearing in the trees, using snipers and raids to keep the Soviet soldiers pinned down. They rushed in on skis and placed Molotov cocktails in the Soviet tanks, blocking off supply chains and isolating thousands of soldiers who then fled into the nearby forest. All the Finns had to do was go back to their camps and wait for the cold to do the rest.
2: When I went to this reenactment spot, the contrast between the the tent, you know, almost like the glamping yurt for the Finns, compared to this "quote unquote" rat hole that the Soviet soldiers are hunkering down in and and basically freezing to death. It's just a little like dugout hole in the snow, and they threw a little canvas roof over it and tried to run a pipe up the middle to have a fire, but. I mean, all those guys were going to die, and they knew it. Here's reenactor Visa
0: Raniko.
1: They were losing their feet. They were losing their hands because the cold weather was was killing them slowly. They had no no good clothes for the winter time, and very much people were frozen here, and that is quite awful awful to think.
0: While the Russians lost hands and feet to the cold. The Finns built saunas in the forest, and their snipers on the front lines honed in on campfires, so any Russian soldiers who tried to warm up were shot. Thousands froze to death. Some got so cold that they attempted to flee across a nearby frozen lake, their olive green uniforms making them easy targets against the white landscape.
1: It, they tell that they were howling when they were running, so it was a terrible noise when they were going, going away, so it was. Uh, screaming and howling and uh, the noise, awful, awful sound, they said.
0: By the end of the Winter War, 140,000 Russian soldiers had been killed, compared to 26,000 Finns. But even though the Finns massively outfought the Soviets, they couldn't actually win. The Russian army was just too big. The idea that they had been victorious came from the fact that they had spent four months fighting an obviously superior force,
2: And only to give up a little bit of their borderlands it reads like they lost but finn see this as a victory and the rest of the world kind of does too because you know they were supposed to get crushed i mean this is like this is beyond david and goliath kind of cliche i mean this is again this is the biggest fighting force the planet has ever seen in the red army against a country of 3.5 million people including like infants and the elderly So it makes sense why the Winter
0: War is a point of national pride. But it's hard to avoid the fact that today's Russia is a very different threat than the one from World War II. Which brings us back to David's original question. Where does fire building and hunting reindeer, where does any of this fit into 21st century warfare?
2: So this question was kind of haunting me in a way during the program. Because in the age of modern warfare, like these tools are somewhere between archaic and cutesy. Yeah. And I say that not to like belittle the Finns or these incredibly capable soldiers, but there was this feeling sometimes, especially when we were doing some ski exercises, that it was like a 1930s newsreel. You know, the skis look the same. You got these giant baskets on the end of the poles. You know, we're going over little jumps. So I finally put this question to like one of the top guys at the Ministry of Defense in Helsinki. I was like, come on. Like, this is Russia. Like, without any disrespect to Finland as a wonderful, prosperous nation and the the heroics of the Winter War. It's 2017 now. It's not 1940. And Russia certainly learned their lessons from the Winter War. And they have tons of money, tons of people, tons of munitions. Like, who are we kidding? And he had, I would say, like a very... It was an answer that was both cagey and illuminating know, cagey because they don't want to tell me like how they're gonna fight back against the Russians with with too many specifics. But it was illuminating because he reminded me that of ways that small teams of super capable soldiers on skis could still kick some serious ass. Apparently the Finns have all these caves all over the country, especially in the north, and I think a lot of them are tricked out to hide, um warplanes, and they also have very wide roads all over the country, so that, like, uh, like in a place like Seoul, like, you can land aircraft on these roads, even though they are between tiny villages of 200 and 160 people or something. So, the idea here is that Finnish military defense equipment is so scattered that... It would not be so simple even for an invading force as powerful as Russia, to just do away with Finland like uh, in a heartbeat. but there are there are ways that commandos on skis in the 21st century can still um, really inflict a lot of pain. But none of that really happens if you can't ski. 45 miles through the night with three other men or women and dig a snow cave, change out of those sweaty clothes that are about, that are gonna kill you if you don't, and throw together your MREs with a fire you made and set the explosives in the right way. You know, so you have to have those winter warfare skills or those wintertime skills to be that super soldier who's gonna like make sure that Putin doesn't um, grab Finland in like a, in an epileptic fit of land grabbing.
0: What the Finnish understand is that while Putin may be unpredictable, he's not foolish. So what they're doing is making it as clear as possible that invading Finland
2: would be as bad an idea now as it was back then. A lot of the mentality of Finnish defense, I mean they emphasize that word so much, it's just defense, defense, defense. A lot of the defense strategy is A, making Russia today remember what happened in the Winter War in 3940, and B, making the cost of invasion look too expensive to bear to, to Putin today. Putin didn't see it as very expensive in terms of lives lost or military cost to go into Crimea, Ukraine. Clearly, he did it. But the idea for Finns is to keep that memory fresh so that Putin is thinking it it's, would just be too costly to go into Finland.
0: In other words... If you're a country trying to avoid redrawing the map of your own borders, it's not so much about using all your military power as it is about your enemies knowing that you have it. Finland doesn't need to fight as long as Russia knows that it can. They've turned the winter cold into a piece of military technology. Powerful, deadly, something you don't want to have to use. But the message is clear. If you come into Finland in the winter, you could catch your death.
1: This episode was produced by Peter Frick-Wright and Robbie Carver, and based on the feature Red Dawn in Lapland by David Woolman, which was published in the December 2017 issue of Outside Magazine. Music by Robbie Carver. The Outside Podcast is made possible by our Outside Plus members, Learn more about all the benefits of membership at outsideonline.com podplus pod plus. That was a great time to join us. We're offering new members a 40% discount through November 28th.